question that I want to ask you about. Any micro coming from a very bad hot spot to the coronavirus? Good morning. Good morning. We, um, you know what? I think it's a microphone. That's not a little different, didn't it? There was a sound better. So we'll try it again here. Okay. Hey, uh, have you guys ever noticed how most people hate Jesus? Most people that we know of that do not trust Christ hate Jesus. Why is that? Why do they hate Christ so much? I mean, he's perfectly innocent, right? Some try to just erase him out of history. He never existed and such. But some people will... A lot of people still acknowledge that he did exist, but they are either indifferent, which if you're indifferent, you hate him. You either hate him or you love him. There's no in-between. Well, it's because of the cross. That is why people hate Christ. You see, to the Jews, the cross is a stumbling block. And to the Gentiles, it's foolishness to our world that we live in today. And in this country, it's foolishness. Christianity is foolishness. Christ is foolish. The cross is foolish. That's why most people, if you came to church today, are not going to church, even in this town, they're jogging on the sidewalk. They might have gone to church last night. Might have gone earlier. Might be going later. Chances are they're preparing for what they're going to do today. Go to the, you know, whatever. Wherever they want to go or do. Without really any thought of who Christ is, who God is. What church is. A lot of these people have never even been to church in our generation now. So... It's the cross, though, when it comes down to it. It offends people. And did you know that in Luke, where we're at now, in 23, chapter 23, we have now arrived on our long journey at the cross. We are at Calvary. That's where we're at. This is where everything is at, folks. This is the heart of the gospel, the cross, the death, burial, resurrection. And we happen to be right there on the reporting of the story. This was long planned before the foundation of the world. Without the cross, without the crucifixion of the Son of God, we all sitting here would be hopeless. We would not have a hope. We'd be lost in our sins destined for eternal punishment. That's where we would be. That's sad, isn't it? But if you trust in Christ, you realize that Calvary is the absolute crossroads of the history of mankind all through the ages. Before Christ, after Christ, to where we're at today, the cross stands right there in the middle. It's the crossroads. And how one views this cross and views who Christ is and what He did at that, Christ, at that cross determines one's final destiny. That's where it's all at. That's why people hate the cross. It determines their destiny. For all those who believe, it's a joy. When we talk and sing about the cross, right? How serious this matter is. The most important matter in all of history, in all of mankind, is Christ and the cross. For us, it's joy. For the ones who will never trust Christ, it's the agony of hell and eternal punishment that is to come. Most people do not take it serious. There is no salvation, no redemption, no forgiveness, no heaven without the cross and the resurrection. We must embrace Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and believe on that sacrifice. The price that was paid at the cross was for our sins. 
That's the deal. You either take the cross seriously or you don't take it at all. It's one or the other, isn't it? People who are not taking it seriously are walking on thin ice early of a morning. And sooner or later that ice is going to melt, get thinner, and they'll plunge into the depths. They will melt also. They'll fall through. It's a grave danger, isn't it? There are times that we have been in great danger and never even knew it. Have you ever had something like that happen? A great danger and you had no idea. And of course we can relate to that, you know, physical things in our lives, but also we were also at that dangerous spot before we knew Christ. We didn't know what was happening. Since the greatest danger is the danger of dying and facing God's eternal punishment, there's no other greater danger than those who are oblivious to the danger and threats that they've been given that are ahead. It is serious, isn't it? They don't even think about God's wrath. They don't think about any punishment to come it's not at their forefront. They just want to be happy in this life. Folks, if that's what it is all about, that is sad. Because you'll never find happiness really without Christ. He is our joy. He is our happiness, isn't He? People that are not trusting are in a great need. They're lost. The moorings broke. They went out to sea and they're just floating with nothing that they can hold on to. They're oblivious to what's going to happen to them. Oblivious to the cross. There were people standing around the cross that were at the cross that were oblivious to what it was all about. Matter of fact, most of them had no clue what it was. But they were there and they missed the whole deal of what it was about. To certain people, like Roman soldiers, it was a matter of another another day's work where they assist in crucifying somebody that would be a Jew They did not know what what it was really about. That was their life. That's what they did. There was also the crowd that was just watching. It was a gruesome thing that they did. They were oblivious to it all. What was so gruesome? Some of them were shouting and yelling and taunting him and jeering him. Others are just standing there, seemingly innocent. But they're held responsible what they did that day. It was an interesting spectacle is why a lot of the crowd was there to see what was going on. They had no idea what the connection was with the cross and their sin. And Him being treated so cruelly and so unjustly. They made no connection there. Jewish leaders were really relieved and glad to get rid of this troublesome prophet that took away their prophets from the temple, condemned them by his statements that were the Word of God. We certainly see the cruelty and the depravity of man in all its light and all of its obvious sin at the cross. They offend God with what they say, with what they think, with what they do. You have the Holy God here. But into this scene, a terrible, dark day, sins are going to be judged. 
And you see people making fun of our Lord and Savior. And into this scene is inserted one who reveals man's sin as it is seen as we look at it and man's great need and God's great amazing grace. Do you know this is one of the most glorious aspects of God that is seen by humankind is whenever He is at the cross. A cry from Jesus comes out says this, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Wow. Who else could have said that? That's one of the first sayings that Jesus says. It's His first saying. He starts with that. With, he's at the cross. He's crucified right now. And he says this. There are seven sayings that the Gospel writers record for us. Luke says the first one. There's another one coming in this message today too. We'll read that in a moment. We're going to focus on two topics today. One of them is the cruelty of man. Right here at the cross. The pinnacle. The crossroads. And then we're going to see the compassion, the kindness, the mercy that Christ has showing off His great glory. Two things that seem to be at, the, uh, at other ends of the spectrum seems like quite a conundrum. It is my intention on this exposition today to focus on the two topics here. Man's wicked, evil depravity. The iniquity that is there of man. You see his heart. And then the compassion and kindness of Christ. So, you guys ready? Grab the Bibles. Let's uh, stand. Turn to Luke 23. Verse 34 after he now has been up on the cross, it says they crucified him in verse 33. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. And the people stood by, looking on, and even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now there was also an inscription above him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered, and rebuking him, said, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, Remember me when you come in your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly, I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Let's pray. Father, it's amazing. Your patience is hard to understand. Your compassion, your kindness, your love, your mercy. It's overwhelming. No other man would have said these things. And yet, this is what you planned. You planned the Son of God to die on the cross for our sins in such a way that was so humiliating. Humiliating. 
and they took the full brunt of our sin and took this from these sinners and took our sin as we put Him there too. And He paid for our sins. He forgave us. And we will enter paradise because of His work. In Jesus' name, Amen. Staggering story. Everybody's heard it over and over. You've read it how many times? Always keep in mind, this is where everything goes back to. The cross. Whatever you're confronting, whatever you're doing in your life, go back to the cross. If you're dealing with some things, take your problem there. Look at Him. Jesus is the answer, as we sang, right? So here we are. We're ready to go here. First one is that staggering statement. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. This is a desperate situation. National consequences on Israel is going to follow. Uh, within close to 40 years, it will happen. Jesus has told them about that. He's told them, He's told them. He very much told them just real recently. Now, we know that that judgment will happen on the nations, nation, or nations also, starting with Israel. It will happen to individuals. But God's love is expressed here in a way that is only supernatural. Since they're ignorant, they don't know. That's what ignorant is, to ignore. To not know. He pleads their ignorance, doesn't remove their responsibility or their culpability. They've chosen a course of not understanding who He is, but they still need God's mercy. Jesus does not show vindictiveness at this time. It illustrates His very love, His patience. He told the disciples that they too have to do the same thing. He told them to love your enemies. Here it is. It's on display. You say, well, only God can do that. If you have Christ in you, you too can forgive when it seems impossible. You ever heard of people, Christians probably, I'm sure, that have had some relative, maybe a husband or wife, son or daughter, mother, father, killed by somebody, murdered. That murderer is caught, taken to prison, or, or uh, taken to jail, then in the courts, proven guilty. Then taken to prison. And you've heard of those people that were so close to the one that was murdered. Sometimes it takes years. But those people sometimes want to make sure that that murderer still is held forgiven in that person's heart. They say, listen, I hate what you did, but I want to tell you, I still forgive you. That relieves them now of the guilt of not forgiving because this is the very character of God to forgive this is what He puts into our hearts even when somebody has dearly wronged us. Good application there, isn't it? These words that Jesus said were never heard of before. You think any man ever said something like this? There's no way. After you do hear that, from Christians, you hear it from Stephen early in the church as they are persecuting Him and then killing Him. So, in this particular time period, as they are sneering at Him, making fun of Him, calling Him all sorts of names, He's all beat up to a pulp. He couldn't even recognize Him. 
39 lashes. He's about to die because of all of that. And here we see the heart of God the Father and God the Son. The heart of the Son is seen here. We see the nature of God in Him. He's a merciful, compassionate, forgiving God. And what I think is that the glory of God is at its apex, is at its height. Whenever you look at the cross and see what's going on there, His glory is seen here. This is of vital importance to all human beings, to the sinner who despises Him. Doesn't bring fire from heaven at that time. Sure could have, couldn't it? That could have been part of the story. As soon as Jesus dies... You know, there are earthquakes that have been happening. He could have just split the whole city and just had earthquakes after earthquakes. Thunder and lightning coming down. Fire from heaven. Burn up Jerusalem in two seconds. And that's it. Could have done that, couldn't he? No. He doesn't do that. He shows off His glory. That's amazing. Did you know, this is... The great example that Jesus shows here. Do you remember Moses said, Lord, show me your glory. When you read on, God shows the backside of His glory. But what's the ultimate glory of God? Well, you read on in that passage in Exodus says that He is compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgressions, and sin. That is the glory of God. So when you look at God and you look at the cross, what do you see? The greatest display of compassion and love, merciful, kindness, on and on. And we see forgiveness. (laughs) That is glory, folks, when you look at the cross. To the Jew, it's a stumbling block. To the Gentiles, it's absolutely foolishness. And to us, who are Christians, we're looking at and seeing the very glory of God. That's as good as it gets to us in these mortal bodies. One day we will see with our own eyes, glorious eyes, the very glory of God in its ultimate. We look for that day. But right now, when you look at the cross, what do you see? Boy, those words, loving kindness and compassionate. Loving kindness, compassion, forgiveness, mercy. Whew. This is glory, folks. This is at its apex. That's how you see His glory. Have you seen it? You know, J.C. Ryle said this. As soon as the blood of the great sacrifice began to flow, the great high priest began to intercede. Isaiah 53.12 says, He poured out Himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors to a monarch on His side. Yet Himself bore the sins of many that's us, and interceded for the transgressors. What do you see here? You see the compassion of Christ. You see the heart of the Son and the Father. You see the compassion of our Christ speaking about the Father. Can you imagine if He would have said, this is my Son, what they're doing to him, I'm going to get them right now. I've had enough of what they're doing to my only son. That's where restraint comes in. 
Have you been tough on people around you? Have you not been as compassionate as you need to be? Do you show anger? Do you flare back at them? Do you start to kind of hate them? We just dishonor God when we do that. We have to take this cross and apply it. We must be patient. How long is patience? Seventy times seven. Times seven, times seven, times seven. Restraint. What you have here is a holy God. It's time to act, right? See, He's holy, He's righteous, He's just. And He's always judged, but He's always done it. Extending mercy for a long time. There's blasphemy just pouring out from everybody that's standing around the cross as they're doing this. He pours out wrath, but He restrains here, the Father does. If they were treating your son or your daughter in this way, what would you do? God could have brought judgment. He didn't. At that time, Jesus has a prayer that could spare the life of the nation of Israel and Jerusalem for a while longer. Like a few decades. It delayed the wrath of God that will come. In the meantime, He gives them time to repent, to be saved, to be saved from the destruction from this generation. The salvation that is to come, we see happen to many thousands. Did you know there had to be some in this crowd that were standing here taunting and jeering him. Did you know that? Some of these very same people. And Peter said it in the very first sermon at Pentecost. This Jesus whom you crucified. And in Acts 2 we see thousands come to Christ as they repent. As they identify with Christ being baptized into Him showing it by water. They had ample opportunity to be saved. So there is, Father, forgive them. Most still rejected Christ. Ultimately, they're not forgiven. But in this sense, there's but two senses to look at it. There is the absolute forgiveness and salvation. And some of those did come to Christ. Were brought to Christ. But for others, they were given a length of time to think, to repent, to believe. So, now we get to the cruelty. Did you just see the beauty of Christ there? Verse 34 For they did not know what they are doing, and then it says, and they cast lots, dividing up his garments and among themselves. Drop down to 36. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering the sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. That's an ongoing saying throughout this little time period. If you really are the Christ, and they're mocking Him, they're making fun of Him, they don't expect Him to come off the cross, but that's really what the Messiah would do. Put on a show. Let's see it. They know that's not going to happen. You know what? We as humans would say, okay, watch this. (laughs) Coming off the cross and then just making darkness all over them. But no, He stayed there. Because that's the only thing that's going to save us. (laughs) He's a righteous sufferer, isn't He? 
Well, it says they are casting lots. They're dividing up his garments. First of all, it usually was a squad of Romans soldiers that would do this. A squad is made up of four. In Acts 12, verse 4, you read about a squad of Romans there. Four men, four soldiers here in a death squad. This is what they do. And so, you have four garments could be divided. One to each one of the four. You also have a tunic. This is what they're going to throw dice over. They're going to gamble over. Because the other four garments, they're dividing. There's a regular garment, and then the tunic is seamless. It's one piece. They don't want to tear that up. Divide it up into pieces, it's of no use. This is part of the salary of the soldiers to get whatever they could. They don't want to tear it. So that's the casting of the lots. They fulfilled a prophecy about dividing the garments among them. The clothing they cast lots. Divide the garments. Gamble for that seamless woven one piece. They're hardened to their task. He's innocent. He's righteous. They don't care. They roll the dice. And that's what people are doing in this world who do not trust in Christ. They're rolling the dice that they will win whenever they die. Whatever that means, I'll still go to heaven based upon what I do. They're not interested in the suffering and the sorrowful grief that should have been happening by them. They're aloof. He is in absolute agony. The worst kind of agony you could ever lay your eyes upon. They were seeking a little gain here. They're mocking. They're taunting. If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. You know, there's a placard there. It says... This is the king of the Jews. Let's see. They take that look at it. There he is. This is the king. <laughs> They're just laughing. Making fun of him. That's what's going on. Um, interesting. Go to Psalm 22. You know, in Psalm 22, you have a tremendous prophecy all the way through about Christ's death Incredible. You know, Isaiah 53 is another key prophecy about Christ's death, burial, resurrection, ascension. Psalm 22, you get details. Verse 18 says, They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. A thousand years before the Messiah comes to earth, these words are said, and there they are. They're doing it. It says he's going to be crucified. Because if you look at the rest of Psalms, look at verse 7. All, no, verse, look, look at verse 6. But I am a worm and not a man. Absolute humiliation. A reproach of men. That's why they're making fun of them. And despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head saying, Commit yourself to the Lord. Let Him deliver Him. Let Him rescue Him because He delights in Him. Verse 12, many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouth at me as a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water and I'm all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. And my tongue cleaves to my jaws. And you lay me in the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. 
I can count all my bones. None of them were broken. They look, they stare at me, and then you have this. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Did you see prophecy after prophecy come true as we look at our text today and other gospel accounts? Later on, they're going to mock him by offering him wine, sour wine, vinegar. Go to Psalm 69, 21, another prophecy there. Psalm 69, verse 21. They also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Luke says sour wine, same thing. What's the deal with that? Kings were offered wine. Do you see, they said, this is the king of the Jews. Do they really mean that? Care less. But they're making fun of him and also <laughs> Jews too. We have your king up there on the cross. Well, you see, kings are offered the finest. They were offered the finest of wines. So here you have a mocking of that. Because, you see, what was offered to Jesus was the dregs. It was the worst part. It was vinegar. It was sour wine. Nobody wants this. This is awful. It's horrible. And that's what they give Him because He's a king. We're going to offer Him the dregs. Offering wine. They also gave him a mock scepter, which was made of reeds. A, reed. a mock royal robe that they put him. A mock crown of thorns. He's a king. All of those elements speak of king, don't they? In a humiliating way, yes. And a mock submission and worship. And now, how appropriate this is, you have the king there in this mocking way. And why not just offer a toast to the king with the worst terrible dregs that you could be? Think of coffee. If you have dregs at the bottom, oh, what is this? Jesus really didn't he didn't want it. But that's what's going on. One thing after another after another. It's all mocking. It's all sneering. How can people hate Jesus so much? Why do people hate Christians so much? Because they hate Christ. Because we follow Him. We follow His ways. Why are people hating Jesus today? Why are they hating Christians who stand for righteousness, for all the good things? It makes sense, doesn't it? Not to people who hate Jesus. You see, everything's turned upside down. It's all chaos to them. And they make fun of Jesus. They hate anything concerning Christianity. Well, they should. You see, it's not natural to love someone who comes here to die for your sins because when you say sins, then you also have to repent. Do you think it's natural for people to want to turn from their natural sins that they love to waller in like pigs in the mud? It's only natural to be a pig. And that's what we once were to wallow in the mud and the mire and think it's great. And all at the same time, we are in a prison and we can't see. So, that's why they do what they do. It's just exposed in our time that we can say, 
You know what? They're lost. That's really what this is about. I get it. See, Satan blinds the minds of the unbelievers. We are the ones to give them light. A lot of them don't like that light. But you give them the light. And by the way, don't cast the pearls before the swine. It takes quite a judgment on deciding, should I do this or not? But expect to be sneered at, to be made fun of. If you're the king of the Jews, this is the king of the Jews. Get down from there. See, there was an inscription that was common for crucifixions telling them of really what their sin was or crime. Sin really defines it better though, doesn't it? You ever hear people talking about sin? To sin, what's happening out in the streets, the cities? It's not even called a crime anymore. It's called people are just expressing themselves. Yeah, they're expressing their sin. Even the church doesn't even like to talk about sin because it, it confronts each one of us. And we don't like that. Do we? It's our flesh that doesn't like that. See, this word should make us uncomfortable because it convicts. And it cuts like a sword and it keeps doing that. One day when we're glorified, that'll stop. No more sin, no more sorrow, no more grief, no more repentance, no more confession of sin. In the meantime, we still battle that ourselves. So really the judgment starts with the household of God. And actually, the judgment starts really with me. This is my problem. God has given me, though, the cross and His grace to be able to defeat sin. Isn't that freeing to us? That's redemption, isn't it? Well, Pilate, speaking of this sign, this placard that's put up there, even in all the hatred, the rejection that's going on, here is this sign. Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Actually, if you put all the Gospels together, that's really what it's saying. This is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And Pilate said, and they wanted that off of there. He said, forget about it. This has come to this point. This is what I'm going to do. And it's going to stay. All the leaders hated that. Religious leaders. Oh, they were mad. This is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. They never called Him King. Their only King is who? Caesar. So there are the soldiers. Now we come to the crowd. What we're looking at here is absolute cruelty, folks. Real cruelty at the cross. These people are participating in this cruel, evil execution of Christ. You say, well, you know, there's only... A lot of them aren't even saying anything. They're just innocent bystanders. Are they really innocent? You see, they're cruel in their curiosity. They're called rubbernecks. You ever, you ever seen where there's been an accident on the highway and people are driving real slow and all of a sudden they just keep looking and looking and they, it's like they want to see some gore, some blood and they can go back and then tell other people all the bad things that went on. Rubberneckers, they're called, they pass by and they look to see what damage is done. Even the crowd is merciless. They don't care about Christ and all what's happening. They don't care how he was beat up and he's absolutely innocent. Some believe that he's innocent. But you see, this whole thing was orchestrated by the leaders and they changed the people's mind that quick. How can a mind and thinking change that quickly? If you're not focused on Christ, if you've not been in His Word, I can tell you what, 
everything that you have probably thought could be changed on a moment's time if you're not thinking in a worldview that is of Christ's view. You see, that's what happens to the generation that goes to the universities, and I'll say most of them, I can't say all, but most of them, and you've heard the horror stories, and you've heard it, and if some of you went to college back in the 70s, I will tell you that you encountered, if you went to a secular university, you heard it from some professors that they did not believe in God and they would foster it upon you. Would that be true? And if you didn't, I'm going, well, it was probably a Christian college. And so therefore, you can raise your hand on that. Even at most Christian colleges today, you will have professors that are liberal and they don't believe in God either. Things have changed since the 70s. But if it was secular, I can guarantee you, that's what they've done. They've filled the universities. Missouri University is one of the, uh, as liberal as just about any other university there is, and that's what they foster upon the people. And I'm, saying, you know, I'm not saying, hey, nobody should go to university, because to get a job, they say you have to have university, and I'm not sure that's correct, because most of them now owe over $100,000, and for the rest of their lives, they will be paying that. Unless they get forgiven of that, which the government will say, you're forgiven. Well, not the people that are owed that, though. <laughs> but at any rate, I, that's my rant and raving on the universities. And I'm telling you, that, that's where all of this, this comes from, I guess you could say. Um, the people are standing by by the way, even that generation that those some of those kids have gone to church, gone through youth uh, ministry and such, a lot of them are turned around in a day that quickly. Maybe a, a few weeks, a few months, but they're turned around. There are some, it's very rare, who will stand up to their professor, and when they do, you know what the rest of the story is. They're either kicked out of the class or they're given a great big F no matter how they did on the test. They're given that. That's the option they have. You've heard those stories over and over and over. And frankly, I would not send any son or daughter now that I know what they do to some place like there that's going to try to change your mind. Everything that you have fed them all their lives, here's what they do. But you don't even have to go to the university. You can be around people that are from that. And they're swayed to go to that liberal view. And you say, why do you believe that? Well, that's because the professor told me. Do they have any facts to back up? No, but they're belligerent and they hate Christ. That's what's going on. But I don't want to lose my mooring here on where this is going. They're just lost. They need Christ. They need Him severely. So they've been seduced, this crowd has, by the venomous sarcasm coming from the religious leaders. Put peer pressure on them. And so that's why the crowd changed. You'd probably wonder, how can a big crowd like that who was ushering Him in as the Son of David? Hosanna! These people now are watching Him be crucified. And a lot of them are really getting into it. Laughing, sneering. They're vicious. They're merciless. They're in on this crowd. Look in Matthew 27, 39. And those passing by were hurling abuse at Him, wagging their heads. Remember Psalms 22? And saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. First of all, He wasn't going to destroy the temple. They were, and it's actually Him. He's the temple. You, who's going to destroy the temple and build it right back up in three days. Come on down from there. Let's see it. Let's see the show. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. This is the crowd, folks. 
This is what they have been swayed to say. And then the chief priests, all of them, with the scribes and elders, are mocking him, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. They see the placard. Let him now come down from the cross. We'll believe in him. Do you believe that? He would have come down from the cross. Just burst off that. Wipe off the blood. Everything heals back. And people still would not have succumbed to this man they hate so much. It wouldn't have made a bit of difference. Because he resurrected. And people still rejected that resurrection. Except for a few thousand. Quite a number did. The crowd's cruel. They're vicious. So we read in Matthew here what they did. Now we get to the cruelty of the religious leaders. That's not hard to figure out, is it? That crowd thing was kind of puzzling. Does that make sense? Yeah. Verse 35, And the people stood by looking on, and even the rulers were sneering at Him, saying, He saved others, let Him save Himself. This is the Christ of God, His chosen one. So in verse 35, we see the religious leaders joining in here. Nearly always at executions, the clergy are to be there. The religious leaders are to be there. But with a view to ministering to the one who's being put to death. That's why they're there. Uh, Maybe, you know, soothe a little bit of suffering in some way. All they do is what? Add on to the suffering. As they are jeering. You know, the sneering here is the word. It's ekmuktris. Can you say that? <laughs> it means to push up your nose. To push up the nose. It's intense derision and scorn. They blaspheme. It's like they are in pushing up on his nose. They're sneering at him. He saved others. Let him save himself. They here have this statement of Jesus. If He's that powerful, He has the ability to save. Let's see it. He saved others. Sarcasm. Who did He ever save? Interesting. They're thinking He delivered no one. He delivered... Nobody from the Roman government, the Roman occupation. There was no military deliverance. What a pathetic individual. He didn't save anybody. He's not a savior. Let him deliver himself. Total scorn here. But you know what? At that time, on the cross we will see that He will save exactly the ones who He came to die for. He is saving people for eternity at the cross. And they're saying, come down there if you can save us. Save yourself. They keep jeering. In their view, a Messiah would not ever hang on a cross. What the taunters don't realize is that the servant of God suffers for his own us. Absolute suffering. Isaiah 53, we see that suffering precedes exaltation. Did we go to Matthew 27, 42? Did I turn there earlier? Did it? He saved others. He cannot save Himself. He is the King of Israel. Let Him come now down from the cross and we will believe in Him. Just backs up with what we're dealing with here in Luke. Now we go to the cruelty of the criminals. Number 5. 
found in verse 39 through 42, one of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us! (laughs) He's mocking him too. The synoptics, Matthew, Mark, Luke, we had it recorded. They're actually mentioning the thieves, but in Luke here, we see that how another of the thieves who was mocking Jesus also, both of them were, and then all of a sudden something clicked in one of the minds. Apparently, not apparently, one of them had a change of heart. See, Christ can sway things very quickly too, can't He? He changed His heart. Hey, aren't you the Christ? Save yourself. By the way, if you're doing to do that, save us too. And here you have this one man. The faith in his heart is expressed by his lips. Confess, believe in your heart and confess with your mouth. He spoke. This man has done nothing wrong. He's innocent. By the way, He realizes the injustice of this happening. It's just for them to die this way, isn't it? Because they deserved it. And he said that. We deserve this punishment. This man doesn't. He's perfectly innocent. You know what? Injustice. That's what the world is full of. Injustices. We've seen it all of our lives. It happens. To mock Jesus is to support injustice. People are crying out justice as they're mocking the ways of Christ. That's injustice at its worst. Those who fear God had better realize what it means to taunt Him. And we do. His injustice that was put upon Him was for our justification. As He dies, He's buried, and He arose. We are justified in that we're now declared righteous. His work is done. The criminal... that speaks up for Christ here and saying that he did not deserve this. He says, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. I want to go to the kingdom. I want to be where you are. Jesus, remember me. He's anticipating being restored and resurrected. He believed in the resurrection. Because he knows he's going to die. His perception here contrasts the blindness of the one over here that's taunting him and what true belief is. He confesses his guilt here. We justly are suffering this. This is right. It's our sin. He's guilty. He knows it. And he mercifully cries for Jesus to save him, to be brought into the kingdom. He recognized the saving power of Christ. That's all it takes. What did he do? Absolutely nothing. So some people say you have to be baptized to be saved. Well, to be baptized into Christ, yes. But to be baptized in water, and I, am I saying it's it's not a good thing to baptize in water? No, it's we're commanded to do that. What are we saying here? You can go to Christ and you can be saved, even if you're not even baptized. He didn't have time to be baptized. It is a duty to do that in the sense that we are commanded, but no work will ever have anything to do with saving you. He didn't do any kind of that. 
from this day the man will be in the abode of the righteous. The Jews longed for paradise. And Jesus says this great statement. Here's the second statement that we have recorded here. Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. The Jew knew what paradise was. Paul related to it in that wherever he went up to the third heaven, he called it paradise. Whether in the body, out of the body, I don't know. But I was there. Somehow, some way. It was in the abode of God. In Revelation 2.7, speaks of paradise. He who has an ear, let him hear. But the Spirit says to the churches, to him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life. Remember the tree of life? Adam and Eve? That was there. It's like it was transplanted into heaven. And of course the Garden of Eden was a paradise. But there's one better than the Garden of Eden. It's the very abode of God. The tree of life which is in the paradise of God. The ultimate. All kinds of ideologies have the better world to come. Nirvana. Like Hinduism speaks of. Or Buddhism. All the different things people have. We can finally come to peace and rest. It's all lies. This is the ultimate paradise. Jesus doesn't explain how this works, but He assures to him, doesn't He? He doesn't get to give him all the theology of how you're saved by grace through faith and how you're justified. All of that stuff that we know of, He was just saved right there because He came to Christ in the way that He's speaking. Sees Jesus amidst all the mocking. Jesus saved him while on the cross. The rest of the request of the taunts has been granted to one who learned who Christ was and he trusted. Well, this prayer, Father, forgive them. It's a general prayer. There's a couple of aspects that you can take out of it. He throws open the forgiveness of God. All who have rejected, no matter how great your crimes are, no matter how much what you've said right here, Father, what they're saying, what they're doing, forgive them. I forgive them. You forgive them. Now, is he talking about salvation for every one of them that are crucified? Not in the way of a final salvation where they are forgiven and will enter into heaven, into paradise with Christ. But they are extended a period of time so they can believe, repent, turn to Christ. There's a second aspect, another level, where this is a specific prayer for all the ones that He died for specifically for salvation. It's a specific prayer. It involves the thieves, even the priests, even the soldiers, even us. The great irony of Calvary here is that while all the scorn was being heaped on Christ, He was bearing the curse of God. Sure, He was taking on the curses of mankind, but the curse of God is really what it's about. Because in a little bit, He will experience the full wrath of God unleashed upon Him. You see, there's one thing about being afraid of whatever, but there's also another thing about fear of God. There's one thing about everybody should fear God because... You know, we're saved from a lot of things. Sin, death, hell, Satan. 
But the one that is the most important is that we're saved from God. And I know that sounds blasphemous. But you see, without Christ and what He did, we're all condemned to hell. We're saved from His wrath because of what Christ is doing right here. The wrath of God should be upon all of us. But we're saved from God because God, in person of Christ, is cursed by God the Father. And the Son provided the very atonement that we had to have for forgiveness. And so there is where He prayed for the ones who are His. At the same time, He's praying for the other ones. Father, don't hold this against them. For all of mankind through history. For the ones who killed Him there. And for us, for people today. In that we take joy. We have the Gospel right in front of our eyes as we read through those texts. Let's pray. Father, great God, Almighty, You are holy and awesome indeed. And You restrain Your wrath until it's time to take the ones who have not believed in You. You offer repentance. You offer for them to come to Christ. But ultimately, the only ones that can come to Christ who are the ones chosen before the foundation of the world. Our minds have difficulty trying to understand that. But the news is is that all are told that they are are to come to Christ. And it says, if you come to Christ... I will no wise cast you out. So that's what they're told. That's what we tell in our gospel presentations to the lost. Flee to Christ. And the wrath of God will be taken from. Thank you for this day, Lord. And thank you for this precious passage as we're at the cross. Help us to look at it daily. For that is what frees us. We're set free from our bondage and from our sin. Look at Him. In Jesus' name we pray.